Welcome to the Centerpoint Vineyard Podcast. We're a church on Sydney's northern beaches, seeing lives transformed by Jesus. We hope you enjoy this message. Thank you, Ollie, for that this morning. It was awesome. Beautiful presence of Jesus in worship. I love what God's doing amongst us. Uh, it's almost guaranteed. It's, worship is, is one of those places, well, the Bible says when two or three gather in his name, there he is present with us. And it's what some people can call a guaranteed place of encounter. Biblically, when you gather as family, God is present with you. And I just love what he's doing amongst us as we, as we do that. He is making his presence known. It's really beautiful. Uh, if you are jumping in with us this morning uh, for the first time, or perhaps you've been tracking with us, we're in the middle of a series called Trusting the Story, looking at the lives of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And the story of this ancient family, it's actually very much linked to our own story. We are a product of the redemptive story that God was working 4,000 years ago through this family, all the way through Jesus and then to us. And we've looked at Abraham for the first two weeks. Part three, we looked at Jacob, which was last time, and he was deceiving his father Isaac in, in stealing his brother Esau's blessing. And Esau was so broken by that event that he vowed to kill Jacob. And so the result of that was Rebecca, their mother, sends Jacob away from his brother Esau to his uncle, her brother Laban, hundreds of miles across country. And that's where we're going to pick up the story this morning in Genesis 29. So if you've got your Bibles, you can turn there. It will come up on the screen. There is a chunk of text this morning as we work our way through it. But in this passage that we're about to read, we have this really interesting mix of God's gracious providence alongside his discipline in the face of man's idolatry. It's a major theme of scripture, God's providence, his discipline, and man's idolatry. And we're going to unpack these three together and pull out some applications for us. So if you've got your Bibles, Genesis 29 will hopefully be up on the screen as well. Then Jacob continued on his journey and came to the land of the eastern peoples. There he saw a well in the open country with three flocks of sheep lying near it because the flocks were watered from that well. The stone over the mouth of the well was large. When all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone away from the well's mouth and water the sheep. Then they would return the stone to its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob asked the shepherds, my brothers, where are you from? We're from Haran, they replied. He said to them, do you know Laban, Nahor's grandson? Yes, we know him, they answered. Then Jacob asked them, is he well? Yes, he is, they said. And here comes his daughter, Rachel, with the sheep. Look, he said, the sun is still high. It is not time for the flocks to be gathered. Water the sheep and then take them back to pasture. We can't, they replied, until all the flocks are gathered and the stone has been rolled away from the mouth of the well. Then we will water the sheep. While he was still talking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherd. When Jacob saw Rachel, daughter of his uncle Laban, and Laban's sheep, he went over and rolled the stone away from the mouth of the well and watered his uncle's sheep. Not a lot has changed in the male psyche in 4,000 years. Jacob's like, look, I can move a big rock. <laughs> then Jacob kissed Rachel and began to weep aloud. He told Rachel that he was a relative of her father and a son of Rebekah. So she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he hurried to meet him. He embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his home. And there Jacob told him all these things. Then Laban said to him, 
you are my own flesh and blood. I just want to pause here for a moment. It's really interesting. This event is what you might term a divine appointment. So in God's providence, he leads Jacob all the way hundreds of miles to Rachel and Laban. He's traveled hundreds of miles across country and just so happens upon a well at exactly the same time that Rachel arrives there. And if you've been reading through Genesis with us, this story might ring in your ears because Isaac, who's Jacob's father, married Rebekah. It was Abraham's servant who went to find Rebekah from this same region, from Haran. And he had an almost identical divine appointment at a well there. And Laban, who is featured in both stories, has an almost identical reaction. So in both cases, he hurries out and meets the person at the well. And the author is wanting us to notice something in this kind of repeat event a generation later. See, even when sin causes his people to stuff up, stuff up their story, even in Jacob's sin that's driving him hundreds of miles away from his home, in God's mercy, he still orchestrates things so that his divine purposes will come about. And there is an encouragement in there for us. God is not a God who just lets everything run its course by chance. God can and regularly does intervene in his creation on behalf of his people. These events are not just chance encounters, they're examples of God's providence. And it happens so much in scripture that I would say we can actually expect God to work this way in our lives. And I've witnessed events not around a well, but events of God's providence in my life, in my own story. And we can start to expect God to do this, to lead us into divine appointments where his purposes are being revealed. That is the kind of God that we worship. Next slide. After Jacob had stayed with him for a whole month, sorry, I'm on the wrong slide there. There we go. After Jacob had stayed with him for a whole month, Laban said to him, just because you're a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than some other man. Stay here with me. And this is the part of the story where we start to see hints of idolatry forming. See, commentators suggest that these descriptions plainly suggest Rachel was a knockout going for title of Miss Haran that year, while his, her older sister Leah possibly had some kind of feature that was considered unattractive physically. But what's interesting is Jacob deals with Laban here for Rachel, the knockout younger sister, not for the older sister Leah, as should be the custom. And what he offers Laban here as a bride price, which was the custom of the day, is way beyond the norm. It is outrageously extravagant. Seven years working for free for the younger daughter, Rachel. You see, Jacob isn't just in love with Rachel, he is obsessed with her. And he'll do anything he can and everything he can to have her. So just hold on to that thought while we continue the story. Verse 20. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. My time is completed and I want to make love to her. 
I want to pause here because commentators suggest that this statement is unusually explicit in the Hebrew. And even in today's culture, which is highly sexualized, can you imagine going up to your future father-in-law and saying, give me your daughter, I want to have sex with her. It's not going to fly. This is just another example that Jacob is obsessed here with Rachel and Rachel's beauty. Verse 22, so Laban brought all together the people of the place and gave them a feast. And when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and Jacob made love to her. And Laban gave his servant Zilpah to his daughter as her attendant. When morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Now Jacob, what's the reason that he's here in the first place? It's because of his deception. He is known as the deceiver. He deceived his father, Isaac, out of giving the blessing to Esau and giving it to him. So it was his deception that led him all the way to Rachel. And now all of a sudden, to Jacob, deception is wrong. Why have you deceived me? You see, God in his providence has led Jacob to Laban and to Rachel, but it's also led Jacob Jacob towards facing his own brokenness. And here comes a knockout blow from Laban. Verse 26, Laban replied, it is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. What was Jacob's deception? It was stealing the birthright and the blessing from the older brother. Can you imagine what this would have been like? It would have been ringing in his ears, like a weight of, of conviction of sin would have come down on his shoulders. The whole reason I'm here is because I went and stole the blessing from my older brother. And now I'm obsessed with this daughter, Rachel, and I've been deceived. The weight of what Jacob was running from would have crashed down on him in that moment, that buried sin. Let's finish the chapter, verse 27. This is Laban speaking. Finish this daughter's bridal week, and then we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. Ouch. And Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, that's the marriage week. And then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her attendant. Jacob made love to Rachel also. And his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. And he worked for Laban another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive But Rachel remained childless. And this is kind of the author's way of making note that it's almost like God and his providence is evening the scales here. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, It is because the Lord has seen my misery, surely my husband will love me now. Verse 33. She conceived again when she gave birth to a son. She said, Because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Again, she conceived. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, now at last my husband will become attached to me because I've borne him three sons. So he was named Levi. She conceived again. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, this time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. Now, if you've read your Bibles, you'll know that time and time again, the sin that tends to grieve God the most is not the sin you'd probably ordinarily think. 
It is, in fact, the sin of idolatry. The first two commandments of the Ten Commandments are directly related to idolatry, to worshipping other gods. Now, our temptation today in the West is to think about idolatry primitively. You know, because we're not carving totem poles and putting them up next to our clotheslines, we think that we're immune from this kind of sin. Because, I mean, how primitive is it to worship something made of metal? Like an Aston Martin. Or money. Or to worship something made of stone. Like a house. Or wood. See, of course, idolatry goes way beyond things that are physical. (laughs) Ezekiel talks about idols of the heart. And Tim Keller, he defines idolatry in his book, Counterfeit Gods, that an idol is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. See, an an idol is an alternative to God. It's when a good thing has become an ultimate thing in your life. So when we start looking for security or our satisfaction in something other than God, we're in really dangerous territory. Mulholland, in his book, Invitation to a Journey, he has a really helpful framework for the layers of sin that Jesus peels away in our lives. And the deepest one is what he calls our trust structures. Psychologists might call these our attachments. Our reformed brothers and sisters would call these the idols of our heart. These are the things that we think we need in order to feel okay and happy and at peace. And as long as we have these attachments or our trust structures linked to someone or something other than Jesus, we will never fully experience freedom. Those are the kind of idols that we see in our text this morning. They aren't made of wood or stone or metal. They are good things becoming an ultimate thing in the character's lives. So Jacob, for example, makes Rachel his trust structure. Jacob never really had his father Isaac's love. And now he's far away. He doesn't have his mother's love either. His inner life would have been empty and until he stumbles upon Rachel. And all of a sudden, there's someone there that can fix everything for him in his mind. And so he does whatever it takes to make his life feel okay by marrying her. So he works for seven years for free just so he can have Rachel. And he ends up working 14 years for free. That's not love. That's idolatry. And while we're an entirely different culture today in the West, many of us still bow down to this exact same idol. So romantic love sexual gratification, they're idols of our age. It's literally everywhere. It's in every song on the radio, in every movie, on the side of every bus. One anthropologist even called it the idol of apocalyptic romance. So instead of reaching for God, what we do is we reach for the exact same transcendence that we should be feeling in God, the security, and we look for it in romantic relationships. And our world screams at us that unless we're in a romantic relationship and having Hollywood sex five times a week, we're somehow missing out. Unfortunately, this idol is as rife in the church as it is outside of the church. And I think Jesus wants to free us of that. Because as married people here will know, even if you do marry, if you're looking to your partner to fulfill your every need in the way that only God can, 
not only will they constantly let you down, your partner will be crushed under that pressure. No human being is qualified for that role of God in your life. And we see that here in Rachel and Leah. So Leah so needs Jacob's affection in order to feel okay that she keeps having son after son in the hope that Jacob will finally give her the attention that she needs. So she has Reuben, surely my husband will love me now. Then she has Simeon, because the Lord heard that I am not loved. Then she has Levi, now at last my husband will become attached to me. So Leah can never be satisfied until she feels loved by Jacob. It's her trust structure. She cannot differentiate herself from her need for Jacob's affection. And Rachel's trust structure is that she always needs to be number one. So she's being so crushed by Jacob's idolatry, it's become her trust structure that she gets challenged by the fact that Leah is having kids. In chapter 30, I didn't read it out, it's the next chapter along, but it says, when Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister. So for Rachel, her beauty and Jacob's constant attention wasn't enough. She had to outcompete Leah on every front. And for me personally, as I've been writing this talk, the Lord has convicted me that I find it very difficult to differentiate myself from how church is doing. Center point. We're getting deep now. (laughs) There is, for some reason, I need to look into it, but there's an achievement-based structure, trust structure inside me that I crave in order to feel content and at peace. Unless I feel like I'm achieving something, I struggle to feel content. And I have a lot more work to do to unravel that trust structure in my life. But my question this morning is, what are the trust structures that you struggle to differentiate yourself from? I need my spouse to always think well of me in order to experience peace. I need my bank account to look healthy in order for me to feel at peace or content. I need, to think, I need people to think that I'm doing a good job. I need everyone to like me. I can't cope if someone has an issue with me. I need to feel useful to be at peace. What is your trust structure? It's confronting when you start to see your trust structures for what they really are, idols of your heart. And many of us exist in a pattern through life without ever identifying our trust structures or doing the hard work of correcting them. And if you're not sure whether something has become a trust structure or an idol in your heart, some helpful questions to ponder with Jesus could be, what happens to you if that thing is ever taken away? Or what happens to you if someone criticizes those things? Another great way is to ask the question, where do I invest myself? John Wimber, founder of the Vineyard Movement, once said, show me where you spend your time, money, and energy, and I will tell you what you worship. And I think he's onto something here, because the reason that idolatry is a problem to God is twofold. One, you can never know the freedom that Jesus intends for you when you're bowing down to idols. But two, it's a matter of worship. God is jealous for our worship because he is the only one that is worthy of it. And as the theologian J.I. Packer writes, it's impossible to worship nothing. If we do not worship the God who made us, we shall inevitably worship someone or something else. And as the New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says, we become like what we worship. We're supposed to worship Jesus because when we do that, we become more like him. And not only do we find our true identity in him and therefore true freedom and true 
joy. He is worth it. So that raises the question, how do we deal with our trust structures? And I remember chatting with a mentor friend of mine not too long ago, and I was chatting to him about some of the stuff I was struggling with. And I, I just said something kind of flippantly. I said, yeah, so I think I just need to do a better job of managing that. And he just sort of paused and then just said really calmly on the other end of the phone, Jono, you don't manage idols. You need to tear them down. <laughs> and so I've been looking at how I do that and how Christians for millennia have done that. How have people dealt with their idols? And here are three things that I'm learning on this journey that I want to share with you this morning. The first is confession. Now, we in the Protestant tradition, we're not all that good at this one because what we tend to do is we tend to make our relationship with Jesus individualistic. So I think there's something we can learn from our Catholic brothers and sisters in this role of confession. See, we tend to think that confession is um, our personal salvation, and so we come to Jesus in the quiet place and we confess our sins. But when we do that, we're removing ourselves from the community of God. And so what we're effectively doing is we're hiding. The New Testament model for confession always involves community. So James 5.16, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for each other so that you may be healed. So find somebody that you trust, and this is where we plug huddles again. Huddles are a great place for this kind of thing, to confess your trust structures to each other, and then have your brothers and sisters pray for you. It's part of the family business. But I think it has to go beyond just confession. We need to, secondly, worship Jesus by living in the opposite spirit. Leah, in chapter 29, verse 35, says, She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, this time I will praise the Lord. There's like this resolve here within Leah through this journey. She's decided no longer will my husband's attention be what defines me. No longer am I going to value myself based on his affection. That so far has only brought me bondage. From now, I will worship Yahweh. And so she takes her son, which could easily have been a symbol of Jacob's affection towards her. She takes a son and she names him Judah, which means praise. And names in scripture are almost always significant. So Leah takes something concrete that symbolizes her idolatry and she redirects it to God. It's a turning point for her. She calls her idolatry for what it is and she chooses to live from the opposite spirit. And I think for some of us, we need to make conscious decisions not to bow the knee anymore to the idols of our heart, but instead to commit to ch changing our security blanket and worshipping Jesus alone. And there are time-honoured practices through the Christian tradition that help us do this. So let's say, for example, your idol is money. It has some level of control over you. You think about it, you worry about not having enough, no matter how much is in your bank account. If money is your trust structure, your worship to Jesus in the opposite spirit has to deliberately include generosity. You have to start giving your money away. It's not bowing the knee to, knee to the idol. You start giving it away until it doesn't hold you anymore. And at first, you will hate it, and it will feel really, really hard, but as you refuse to bow down to it, and you lean into generosity, and you start giving your money away as an act of worship to Jesus, something will shift in your spirit, and generosity will then start to birth joy. Richard Foster, he's a writer of a wonderful book called Celebration of Discipline. He says, every discipline leads to a freedom. So you'll experience freedom by giving your money away. 
If your idol is food, you're feeling really low, so you order a pizza or you eat a block of chocolate, your worship to Jesus in the opposite spirit needs to include fasting. If your idol is productivity, working makes you feel like you're in control of your life. Sabbath has to be your discipline. If you need to be noticed, you need to start learning to serve in obscurity where people can't see you. If you need to be loved by someone, you need to go to Jesus and hear his words of affirmation and love over you. And that requires silence and solitude. Whatever your heart's idol is, find a practice that deliberately worships Jesus from the opposite spirit. So we confess, we worship from the opposite spirit. And then number three, we need to learn to trust God's providence and welcome his discipline. And I'll finish with this. This is the piece that helps us get to the, the bottom of our trust structures, the bottom layers. See, in this story, God's providence leads Jacob to the ultimate deceiver in Laban. Why have you deceived me? Jacob doesn't realize that sometimes God will use circumstances in our lives to get our attention to the areas of our life that he wants to put his finger on and we need to let him into. It's discipline in his mercy. So we often view discipline as coming from a place of anger, like your kid does something and you get angry and so you discipline them. And so we think that that's how God disciplines us. But discipline doesn't come from anger, discipline comes from love. He disciplines us not to punish us, but to free us. There's a difference. Hebrews 12, he disciplines those he loves. See, a child with no parental discipline is a child that is unloved. When God disciplines us, it's designed to liberate us. And he does that by humbling us in order to lead us back to him as our ultimate trust structure. So Deuteronomy 8, it's the story of the people of Israel in the desert. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so your God disciplines you. And I think that's what's going on in this story here with Jacob. Jacob is learning he doesn't have to deceive his way into favor. That has been Jacob's oldest trust structure. It's been his go-to approach. Do whatever it takes, deceive anybody that it takes, even if it's your own family, in order to get ahead, even if it hurts those people around you. He doesn't realize that the God that he says he worships can actually be counted on. See, God is a God of kindness. And he begins that process of freeing Jacob from that trust structure by leading him to Laban. And the rest of his story through Genesis will keep coming up and up again. It's like God keeps doing it until Jacob learns the lesson that he can rely on God. See, friends, God is not holding out on you. That is the lie of the enemy right back in the Garden of Eden. God is not holding out on you. And it's the lie that Jesus wants to break, that his grace is actually enough for us. If we can sit in that truth, our trust structures will unravel. And as painful as that will seem in the short term, if you allow his grace to gently unravel those trust structures in your life, you'll begin to walk in greater freedom. And that is his heart for you. All right. Amen.
we'll finish the series next week looking at Joseph's story. How about we stand and we can spend a bit of time asking Jesus to do that amongst us. You've been listening to the Centerpoint Vineyard Podcast. To connect with us, find us on Facebook, Instagram, or by visiting our website, www.centerpointvineyard.org. The theme song for this podcast is Highest Praise by Kieran Delhart. So we see-